Well, this evening, as I said, we're going to begin looking at the Heidelberg Catechism again, starting at Lord's Day 1. You can find that on page 8 in the back of your Psalter hymnal. But before we read Lord's Day 1, I'd like to read with you 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. 1 John is a book that is absolutely filled with comfort at the announcement of God's love, and yet, along with that comfort, much, much like the, the spirit that the Heidelberg Catechism breathes, it really it draws this from 1 John and other passages like it. There's that beautiful comfort of God's love, but right alongside of it, that urging, that obligation that if we have received such love, how can we not reflect it to the world? And I think that, that message we find throughout our catechism as well. And so it's helpful that we begin with a text that really breathes that twofold spirit of look at how God has loved us. Now, how must we respond? So beginning in verse 7 of 1 John 4, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God. For God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him, and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and He who abides in love abides in God, and God in Him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Amen. Amen indeed. Lord's Day 1 of the Heidelberg Catechism asks that oh-so-familiar and yet powerful question. What is your only comfort in life and in death? What is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer that we confess before God and before the world is that I am not my own but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to Him, 
Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life. And He makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Well, given that, what then must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? And the answer we confess is three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free from all my sins and misery. And third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. Amen. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we live in a world that is frightening. It's frightening because there is so little that we can control. We can throw all our energy and money into planting crops that we expect will provide for us in the coming year, but we have no control over whether they will grow and yield in the way that we hope they will, or whether they will be flooded out, or whether they will be hailed, or whether a windstorm will cast them down to the ground and render them useless. We can care for our children with the fierce love of a mother bear, but we can't keep one of them from falling ill and even dying. We can work hard and save our pennies, but when old age comes, thieves can steal, prices can rise, we could spend our final years in poverty and sorrow. This world is filled with uncertainties that we cannot control. And that's not even to mention the scarier fears. The terrorists with bombs and guns. The traffickers who trade in kidnapped children and teens. The scammers who shamelessly swindle folks out of their hard-earned money. The floods and tornadoes that destroy everything people have worked for in hours. Every single moment we awaken to a world that is entirely beyond our control. And every day holds the prospect of an endless future that is potentially filled with trials and temptations and traps of every sort. We live in the midst of a world that is scary. But the coming of Jesus Christ brings a comfort that renders all of those fears moot, empty. The coming of Christ is a balm for our fears because it reminds us of God's stunning love, a love that is so great that He gave His Son in order to replace sin's sorrow with the joy of salvation, in order to replace momentary uncertainty with eternal promise. And that is why we confess that our comfort is that we belong to Christ Jesus. Christ came to provide unmatched comfort for our fears. That's the theme that we find in Lord's Day 1. Christ came to provide unmatched comfort for our fears. And right at the heart of that comfort is the way He releases us from sin's power, which is our first point. Now understand, Christ brings us comfort above all else because Christ is the physical manifestation of God's love. That's why we needed to hear this passage from 1 John 4. There is no fear in love. 1 John 4 verse 18. We fear that which represents a threat to us. We fear that which we cannot control. We fear that which is unknown. But love is the exact opposite. Love is that which is known to seek our good. When you truly love someone, young people remember this, you're looking for that special someone. You wonder, is this really love? Love is that which leads us 
to no longer seek what we desire, to seek our good, but rather to seek in all things for the other's good. Love is selfless. Love pursues what builds up and strengthens and protects and prospers the other one. True love seeks the good of its object, and therefore love and fear can't coexist. There is no fear in love, says the apostle. And how has God shown his love for us? God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. God sent his son to show his love. Not merely a symbol of his not love, not merely an emblem of his love, but as the sacrifice, as the payment, as the concrete application of his love to deliver us from all that would otherwise have destroyed us. God sent his son, not merely as the evidence of his love, but as the action of his love. He was the one thing that we needed if we were to escape what was sure to befall us. He came to pay the price that we could never have paid on our own. Because we were born into death, every last one of us. As the offspring of Adam, we were born into sin. From the word go, we would willingly choose sin before we would choose righteousness. Before you were even able to remember, you saw what your parents wanted you to do and you did the opposite. And you stopped doing the opposite only when you feared retribution, when you feared punishment. That's what comes natural to us. Sin, rebellion, hatred of others, and putting ourselves first. And along with that desire for sin, from the start we were afflicted with Adam's guilt. A guilt that implicated us even before we were born. And because God is just, therefore sin must be punished. Were he to decline to punish us, he would cease to be just, and that means he would cease to be God. But that's a problem. Our God must punish sin, and we can't escape sin. It defines us from the word go. It enslaves us from our very first moment. Slay, your sin is like a, a terrorist, and we are its hostages. Its power is tremendous. We have no choice but to go along with it. As captives, we know that our end will be death. Even if someone pays the ransom, even if someone pays to free us, we know that our hostage takers are cruel and they will not let us go. They will destroy us. But now, what if, what if someone does pay our price? Someone pays to ransom us from sin, but then they also take our place. They willingly agree to stand where we are to endure the chains and shackles, to endure the suffering, to endure the death that is our certain end, if only we would be let go. That's what God did in sending his son. He came to take our place that we might be freed. He came to suffer our consequence that we might escape. And then he triumphed through suffering, through death, through destruction, so that the terrorists would no longer have power. That's what 1 John 4.18 is getting at. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. The guilt of sin, both our sin and Adam's sin, leads all men to live in fear of God's judgment. They might not admit it. They might not even consciously recognize it. 
But you spend enough time in the hospital and you will see how desperate people are to prolong their life for even one minute, for even one hour, for even one day. Why? Because they're terrified of what lies on the other side of that door because in their heart they understand that on the other side of that door of death is the courtroom. They're going to have to answer for everything they've said, everything they've done, everything they've desired and all the things they didn't do that they knew they should have. Yet Jesus came to provide the sacrifice that we otherwise would have had to provide for ourselves. No one else could do it. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sin. The sacrifice that turns away wrath. 1 Peter 1 says, You were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. But you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He paid the the price that no one else could pay. And He paid it all so that we could be freed. And in releasing us from sin, He released us not only from the consequence of sin, but also from its power. From the moment of birth, we couldn't not sin. Not that every action we did was as bad as it possibly could be, of course, but to stop sinning was never an option for us. In fact, to do anything that was truly good, not only in its result, but in its motivation from our heart, to do anything that was truly good was beyond us. Sin enslaved us. It owned us. But when Christ came, He freed us. Again, not only from the consequence, but from the power of sin. For those who are united to Christ by faith, we have a choice. We can choose to reject sin. We're able to begin doing what is good. And that's why God sent His Son. From the moment of His conception, His birth, His first breath, He was paying our price. He was paying the price of complete humiliation. He was paying the price of God Himself enduring the the pain and the struggle of the curse, the price of God receiving His own wrath for our sin, all to deliver us not only from the consequence, but also from the power of sin, so that the chains would fall off, so that we would be freed from our captors. And not only released from sin's power, but restored to the Father's love. That's our second point. He came to deliver us not only from, but also to Through Christ, we receive a transfer of the most astonishing, amazing kind. We began as rebels. Kids, you understand this, right? We began as rebels. Every time you sin, every time you disobey your parents, every time you disobey a teacher, every time you think in your heart something hateful about your brother, your sister, your neighbor, your friend, every time you take something that's not yours or even desire to do so, You're living as a rebel against God. But Jesus came to take us out of our rebellion and to make us the children of God. Think of that. Our sin is an offense, a persistent, knowing rebellion against God. We deserved not only His wrath, but we deserved to be exiled. Think of the Day of Atonement back in old Israel. Two goats were brought forward for Israel's sake. The first goat was destroyed 
burned up on the altar. Why? Well, it's actually it was the blood was poured out, the blood was taken to the, the mercy seat to cover our sin. The blood of that goat had to be poured out and sprinkled on the, the mercy seat, on the throne of God, as a consequence for our sin. But the second goat, what we call the scapegoat, over its head all the sins of Israel were confessed and then that goat was led out away from the camp, away from civilization, out into the wilderness and there it was left to endure solitude, fear, loneliness, and death. That's what we deserved. We deserved to be exiles from God and from all of His blessings. But instead of simply forgiving us of our sin and leaving us alone, no, He reconciled us. He drew us back. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. This, my friends, is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son. Do you fear being cast off from God? Then listen to John. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. We love Him because He first loved us. And He loved us so much that He brought us to Himself and said, You are my beloved Son. You have become my treasured daughter. That's what we celebrate every time we gather together, every time we worship, every time we confess the name of Christ. We celebrate the fact that God so loved us that He didn't leave us as exiles. He drew us to Himself that we might know the tender love of our Heavenly Father. Our catechism says He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. Scripture testifies to this in countless ways. It speaks of God answering prayer the way an earthly father answers the desire of his child who asks for food. Speaks of God as as being like a hen who spreads her wings protectively over her chicks. It speaks of his, his... ever-wise provision and His constant presence with His people. Few places speak with the eloquence and the vividness of God's care for us like Isaiah, 20, or Isaiah 40. There we're told that God has made Himself our shepherd. The most gentle and tender and loving and attentive shepherd that has ever been known. And yet our shepherd, He not only cares for His sheep, but He's able to care for them perfectly. Isaiah 40 tells us that our God is the one who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing and makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted, scarcely shall they be sown, scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth, when He will also blow on them and they will wither and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me or whom shall I be the equal, says God. The rulers of the earth and their kingdoms are as nothing before this God. So we know that He is able to turn anything we face to our good. In fact, He's able to ensure that we face nothing that He has not ordained to use for our good. 
Have you not known, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, he neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might, he increases strength. That is the God who loves you. That is the God who cares for you. That is the one who has made himself to be your father. Now what will you lack if this God loves you as his child? Will you lack food? If your stomach grows hungry, will you lack work? If your job is taken away, will you lack comfort in times of grief or protection in the face of your enemies? Absolutely not. There is nothing that he is unable to provide for you. And though we don't always understand why he provides what he provides, we cannot doubt that he is able to do anything that we need. And that he loved us so much to send his son to to suffer the absolute worst for our sake. So surely he's not going to fall short in the lesser things of our lives. We've all taken comfort from Romans 8 verse 28. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. When Paul wrote that, He wasn't merely speaking of day-to-day matters. He was speaking about how God cares for us in body and soul. God, He watches over us in such a way that if we are afflicted by a disease, He intends to use that disease to strengthen, to grow, to transform us so that we can increasingly bear the image of Christ. If we are faced with some conflict that keeps us up nights, He has ordained to use that to draw us closer to Him or perhaps to show us, to reveal to us some defect that we must repent of that we might grow closer to Him. Everything we face, everything we endure, He's using for our good. That doesn't mean... Young people, remember this. When... when the, Romans 8 says we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. It's not saying that all things work for the immediate comfort of everyone who loves God. We face a lot of things that aren't very comfortable, that aren't very pleasant in the moment. But God uses those hard things, those grievous things, those struggles to wean us off the things of this world, to reorient our desires, to lead us to repent of those sins to which we otherwise would cling, and to help us embrace the very character of Christ who so selflessly loved us that he was willing to die in our place. And shortly after saying that, he assures us, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? The very thought that he who delivered up his son to to save us from our sin, to reconcile us to himself, to make us his children, the very thought that he who did that would now fall short in the lesser things of life, the very thought is laughable. The God who made all that exists, who sustains and upholds everything that is, he loves you so much that he was willing to send his only begotten son for you. 
Therefore, not one thing will come to pass in your life that He has not ordained to use ultimately to bless you. We have been restored to the Father's love. What a comfort that is when we don't understand what's happening, when we're not sure how to process the difficult things that we're facing. When you, children, when you face that situation and you don't know how you're going to get past it, maybe you've sinned and suddenly you get caught in that sin and you don't know how you're going to handle, you don't know how you're going to stand the consequence of that sin, the shame of it, the pain of it, the disappointment you'll see on the faces of your parents. But understand that God has ordained for you to get caught so that you would grow in your recognition of the ugliness of sin but also in the mercy of God. Or again, maybe that thing that you think is always going to happen to somebody else and never happen to you, that diagnosis that you never expect your doctor to utter, that grief, that pain that you never thought would come and suddenly it does. This too, God will use. And He won't use it from afar, but He will be there right next to you orchestrating and transforming every bit of the situation so as to draw you to Himself and to bless you in the end. And yes, it might be hard, but the end result of it is that you will bear the image of Christ Himself. How amazing. You see, our, our God loves us so much that He's not willing merely to save us from sin and not, not even to rest content at restoring us to Himself. He loves us so much that He refuses to leave us as we were. Boy, that's something the world has a hard time with. If it feels so good, it can't be bad, right? I was made this way, so it must be right. Well, actually, you were born in sin, so if that's the thing that comes natural to you, you should probably suspect that it's not so good, whatever it is. But God so loves us that He's not willing to leave us in our sin, in our depravity, in our rebellion. Instead, He renews us by the Spirit's strength, and this too is part of our comfort. So that's our final point. He renews us in the Spirit's strength. To each one who is in Christ, God sends His Holy Spirit. Romans 8 says the work of the Spirit comes to us as a mark, as a proof of our sonship. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Understand how huge is the reality of this gift. By means of the Holy Spirit, we are taught day by day, experience by experience, what it means to be the sons and daughters of God. And we're given the strength, we're given the ability to begin living as His children. Later on in the Catechism, we're going to talk about what it means to live a life of conversion. In the language of our Catechism, conversion isn't a one-time event. It's a daily event. It's an ongoing occurrence in which we learn how daily to put off our sin. To, to recognize and to reject the rebellion that's still within us and to take up with joy the holiness and the righteousness of Christ. That's a lifelong process, but it's a process that God is working within us by His power so that 
bit by bit, as we go through life, we recognize more of our sin and we hate it. And we put it off. And then we recognize more of our sin and we hate it and we begin to put it off. And meanwhile, we see the righteous things that we're not doing, the love that we're not showing, the faithful things that we've not begun to attain to. And, and we begin to. This new righteousness has begun in us now. And it's the fruit of the one God sent to save us. We once wallowed in our sin. But Jesus not only paid the price for our sin, he not only restored us to the Father, but then he sent the Holy Spirit to always be with us so that we would have the power and even the desire to live the kind of life that delights him. Now we're going to talk about that at great length later on. But we need to understand that if we're truly in Christ, increasingly we will see, we will recognize the work of the Holy Spirit within us. That's why in 1 John 4, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. If the Holy Spirit is living within you, you will increasingly put off the hatred that comes natural. Now when I say that hatred comes natural, we're going to talk about that more as we talk about our sin. But hatred is not always, you know, putting somebody's face on a dartboard and throwing darts at it. Hatred is just, oftentimes it's just acting without even bothering to give thought to the, the way it will affect those around you. It's not worrying how you offend the people before you. It's, it's saying, you know, I'm just going to call a spade a spade and telling someone something with the bluntness of a sledgehammer without worrying about how that's going to hurt them, how that's going to, to dwell in their heart and make them feel lousy about themselves. See, God tells us the truth about ourselves. He reveals the ugliness of our sin, but he does it in such a way that gives us hope of transformation, that gives us hope of renewal, that gives us confidence that he's going to receive us despite that ugliness. But we don't naturally do that. We naturally live in hatred toward others until the Holy Spirit comes and begins changing us. And suddenly we care we care about them. We care about how they hear us. We care about how they relate to us. We care about how they relate to God and what they see of God in us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this is the commandment we have from him, he says. You must love one another. And we shrug and say, sure, absolutely, you're right. God's love for us costs Jesus everything. What does your love for your neighbor cost you? If it's true love, it's going to cost something. It might cost you a few hours out of your day as you sit and listen to their tale of woe and sympathize and weep with those who weep. It might cost you some gas 
As you run that neighbor who's had a few OWIs and doesn't have a license, you run him around to do his errands. It might cost you your peaceful evening. When you had nothing scheduled for one time out of two weeks, but you go to help your neighbor out fixing something that they can't fix on their own, it might cost you your pride to love your neighbor. When your neighbor sins against you and rather than sin back against him, rather than offend him right back, rather than pay him back, which is what your old nature screams out for, you love him instead. And you ask him to acknowledge his sin and when he does, you forgive him and you refuse to take your pound of flesh. That's costly. And what's even more costly is when we resolve to, to forgive the way we've been forgiven, which means, which means we make a promise to them that I am never going to raise it to you again what you have done. And I'm not going to tell anybody else what you have done. And I'm not even going to tell God what you've done. I'm not going to allow myself to think about it. I'm going to treat you as though you had never done this thing that offended me so much. And it's only when we forgive in that way that we begin to realize, that we begin to get an inkling of how much it cost God to forgive us. But when you see that kind of love coming out of your heart, then you begin to recognize that He really is with us. He is really changing us. He's making us do and delight to do that which we would never do on our own. Brothers and sisters, Lord willing, we're going to talk about this quite a lot more. But the the crux of the matter is simply this. We live in a very scary world. It is scary above all else because it is filled with sin and rebellion and because we can't control it. We can't even see what's coming so as to prepare for it. But Christ came to provide unmatched comfort for our fears. He has released us from the absolute worst, from the power of sin, both to condemn us and to control us. And He has restored us to the Father who is sovereign, who is able to help us no matter what we face, no matter when we face it. And not only does He promise to help us and to turn all things for our good, amazing grace, but He's promised to be with us throughout it and to use even those struggles, even those hardships, even those fears, so as to renew us into the image of Christ. That's comfort. And brothers and sisters, not only is that comfort, but in a world filled with fear, that is the comfort that allows us to rejoice, to celebrate, and to live a life that is not frightened, that is not worried, but that is absolutely confident day by day. Let us praise God. This week, pause and ponder what God has done, how He has freed you. And let us praise Him anew each day for this amazing comfort He has provided. To Him be all the glory. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord our God, we thank You. For You have given us what we could what we could never deserve, what we could never even devise. You have given us a love and a forgiveness and a reconciliation and an assurance of the future 
that is beyond anything this world could conceive of. And we praise You for it. We ask, Lord, that You would help us increasingly to recognize and appreciate this love that You have shown us. That we, in response, by the power of the Spirit within us, might reflect that love to one another and to a watching world. Fill us with the joy of Your salvation, we pray. And enable us to give You the glory that You deserve. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.